Hey there! The holidays are here, so it's good to know Fred Meyer can save you some time with free pickup on all your fresh favorites. Whether your traditions call for a hearty helping of juicy ham, ample apple pie, or Aunt Sue's legendary twice-stuffed stuffing, Fred Meyer has got you covered. So order for free pickup at fredmeyer.com or the app, and get more time to get your holiday on when you grab your groceries curbside. Fred Meyer, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Welcome to the Everyday Mindfulness Show, the off-the-cuff exploration of everyday aha moments and life experiences. Join a cast of over 70 uniquely brilliant individuals. Each week, Mike Domish and an eclectic mix of cast members and special guests will engage in mindful and lively conversations about everything from meditation to spirituality to personal passions to successes and failures to relationships to the stuff that makes up the moments of our daily lives. Let's get started with your host, author, speaker, provocateur, and a bit of a goofball, Mike Domish. Hi, yes, I'm your host, Mike Domish, and thrilled to be here with a special one-on-one interview this week with Alan Anderson. And for anybody listening right now going, hey, how do I learn more about Alan? You can go to our website at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. We'll have a bio on Alan and link to Alan, all that information. You'll also find out about our entire cast on there. But right now, we want to get to you, Alan. Uh, Thank you for joining me. And I'd like to start by just letting you share what you do. I always find it best to come from your mouth, your words. I had to back it up with some of my past because I'd been a professional musician and a music teacher in the public school system. And uh, I retired early a couple of years ago, but I'm still working teaching. So I'm teaching through a foundation in Milwaukee called Arts at Large, and they bring arts to schools that don't have them right now. There's a lot of shortages. So I teach doing a program there that I call AMAP, which is Arts and Mindfulness for Academic Progress. So I teach children about five, seven minutes of mindfulness practice, and then we do music for the rest of the time. And then I just tie them in together. That, that's really cool. And and I saw that you also do teachings, if I understand correct, in, locally on mindfulness, for instance, in, I think, at the Shambhala Center or places of that sort. Is that correct? Right. That is true. So I give talks sometimes at the Shambhala Center. There's a retreat center up near me, uh, Windhorse Retreat Center, and I do talks up there at times as well. And so where did your inner drive for mindfulness and this, this seeking and the searching for that understanding, where did that begin for you? I think it began in college. There was, of course, plentiful use of drugs around with everybody. And I became more interested in why are they try- what are they trying to tap into? What is this that's going on? So I became a student of mind, I think started reading books on Zen, going to yoga classes, and then eventually uh, through a friend of mine read a book by Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who ended up being my main teacher. And then I just kept developing and developing and developing. So basically I started going to longer and longer retreats, which included a month-long retreat of 14 hours a day of practice. It just kept developing from that. But the initial impulse had to do with just being curious And I'd say a secondary thing would be uh, being a musician. Because when you're on stage and you're performing, there's all this going on here, and then there's all that going on out there. And there's a lot of mindfulness that's necessary to keep the focus here when you're, you might be angry at someone. You might think, I'm so angry at this person, you're playing your song, and then you get a mistake. 
And so <laughs> I noticed, oh, mindfulness is really applicable. Yeah, that's brilliant. And but it all started because you saw the the increase in drug use around you, or it wasn't even necessarily increase, but you knew to that environment of it being all around you and saying, what, what are people seeking or searching? That's where it began for you, which is really unique and different. And at a time where, you know, now we know then our show is called Everyday Mindfulness. But at the time, that's not a word that a lot of people were using. It was not something you're hearing a lot about. Uh, so you were very much cutting edge in how you were using it for music and other things. How did others react to you when you would share this path? Or maybe you, I don't know, maybe you didn't. Did you share it early on? Yes, but there's certainly some bit of discretion that was always used because you're some kind of strange hippie if you're interested in this stuff. So the way it is now is so unusual. There's so much, it's proliferated everywhere. But at that time, there weren't that many people doing it. So it became sort of a, a small group that you'd share things with. And it kind of stayed that way because it was kind of a little bit outside the fringe of normal society. Have you ever thought of writing, and maybe you have, and I could be naive on this part. Have you written a book, Alan? I'm just completing one. That, okay, Actually. that's what I thought. I maybe had heard wind of that. Maybe that's what it was because I know you're so cutting edge on this, and, and so I want people to say, "Hey, I want to be able to get these resources that are out there," because you are applying it to music and to education and, and doing all this. So when you hear the word mindfulness, what does it mean to you? And separate from that, what do you think it tends to mean to people when they hear it, who maybe are not somebody that's looking into it yet, or dove into it, or considered it? It has so many dimensions to me at this point. I'm trying to pull it out and extricate it from the whole meditation tradition to understand that simply as just what mindfulness is. So simply, mindfulness is paying attention on purpose to what's happening. That's a very simple way. But that can be done in so many ways. It could be done as a runner. You're, you're practicing mindfulness. As a musician, you're practicing mindfulness. As a chef, you're practicing mindfulness. So they're paying attention, and you notice when you don't pay attention. The tricky part happens, I think, when it gets to emotions and difficulties within oneself. How do you pay attention to it and not be overwhelmed by it? And so there, I think, mindfulness has to expand in its definition Purely paying attention is, you'd be like a dog paying attention to a bone, but we have something much greater going on, of course, inside of us. Well, and I recently heard uh, another friend and one of our cast members, uh, Dr. Alexandra Solomon, in, in her book, Loving Bravely, says that same concept of paying attention without judgment. And is that what you're referring to of we need to take it to a next level here because to just pay attention to all of the noise, all of the thoughts, everything going on could be overwhelming. But if we release the judgment, now it allows to be a more freer experience. Would that be true? That is absolutely true uh, because you're creating a whole different world when you make a judgment. All of a sudden, you're no longer in the world of being present. You're in the world of judging, of trying to balance things, of trying to creating a whole monologue really a lot of discursiveness about what that's about so i agree with the lack of with the judgment as being an important issue non-judgment but there's also something that i think is very important in my mind i'm having a hard time with this actually i'm i'm, I'm going back and forth between the words meditation and mindfulness and mindfulness is a great tool but then then there are the discoveries from mindfulness that's a whole big wall of books. <laughs> you know, there's a, the discoveries for mindfulness are huge. And that's what really brings the, um, the importance and the weight and the possibilities, I think, for individuals and societies. 
And and I agree with you. And that's what I love about it is when you have those discoveries. And and I think when people listen to that, some people hear that and they think, oh, discoveries, like I'm going to take my life a whole new way. It might not be that, right? It might just be a discovery of that's why I do that. Like, oh, oh, I, I maybe I don't want to do that anymore. Now that I'm aware that there's a reason I do that, I can... I can own that trigger and acknowledge that it's going to happen. It's not doesn't mean it's not going to be part of my life, but I can make a different choice now when that trigger occurs, when I notice that happening. So it's not some life altering. It can be discovery. It absolutely can be, but it can be the small things that have a huge impact. Yeah. The book I'm writing uh, is called when bad lands like bad lands, but when bad lands. And so I'm looking at this area of mindfulness that has to do with, seeing ourselves in ways that we may not want to see ourselves. And this is kind of a trick, right? So if we're going to be mindful, if you just figure it out, you're going to have to be mindful of everything. And that includes the positive and the negative. Now, the way mindfulness is presented so much now, it's all this positive stuff, and it absolutely is. But I think it's a huge challenge to recognize what the aspects are of yourselves that you may have been hiding yourself from or shielding yourself from. So we can call that ego. In my tradition, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche called it cocoon. So we go into our cocoon and we don't want to get out of that. And that cocoon is very strong. So seeing ourselves is really important. Trungpa Rinpoche wrote a lot about this in terms of self-deception. So I've been exploring that. Like, what is that part where we can actually see ourselves? And it's not just Mindfulness is going to make me feel great because mindfulness is going to make you see yourself. Mindfulness is a mirror. That's what it is. I love that. I love the concept that it's a mirror, right? And that it's a mirror without judgment. I can see that and not feel guilty or shame over that. And Brene Brown talks about that concept also of not having that shame, but to recognize, okay, that's part of that's part of me. And that's okay because I, we're not all just good or bad. It doesn't work that way. We have all these elements. We're the and, right? And so, uh, right. and that becomes so important. And that also was, was in Loving Bravely, which is this idea of it's an and conversation. I am, I am loving and I can be mean sometimes. Exactly. It's, I, right? I can be. It doesn't mean I am. It means I can act this way or I can act that way. They're both possibly true in the same person. That's absolutely true. And I quote Bre- Brene Brown a number of times in the book as well. It's, uh, It's her whole thing about, I am not a bad person. I may have done bad things, but I'm not a bad person. And you have to sort that out and be able to say, this is who I am. This is the reality of my situation, but not to take it further, not to push it one more step further in terms of I'm bad because (laughs) It's it's like, oh, I've done these things and I need to acknowledge these things. This is very important. So mindfulness to me is like, getting past the fluff idea of mindfulness and saying, this is really deep inner work because you start with your senses, you start with your thoughts, and then you get down to emotions. And eventually that stuff that's been covered up through shame, through guilt, through a a lack of feeling for loving for yourself, those things are going to rise up out of the goo eventually. Yeah. The most dramatic transformation I've had in my life in the last 20 years was a moment of mindfulness that occurred that was painful. That, yeah. was, that was a very painful reality of how I was projecting to the world at times. Doesn't mean all the time, but at times. And that wake-up call, which was very painful to realize, allowed freedom to come forward. 
And it did, people like to say, oh, the new me. And I made that mistake at the time of saying the new me. No, right? It was, it was always me. I, it was probably a more pure me that was allowed to come forward that I was letting these other projections cloud. And the purest version of my soul of that being was not able to be present because these other things were being projected on top of it, over it, and making it messy. I think that's absolutely accurate. I'm, I'm glad to have this conversation because this to me is really important. I think for people to really move forward, it's not going to come just from mindfulness. To really move forward, it's going to come from mindfulness, great tool, and then again, those discoveries of mindfulness. That could be a definition for the Sanskrit word vipassana. There's shamatha, which is the mindfulness part. Vipassana is the awareness part or the discovery part. And it's hard for me to separate them. I can teach a class and teach about mindfulness. But eventually, guess what? The top's coming off the can, you know, and you're going to see something. And I think it's, it takes a little practice, a lot of practice, actually, to accept what's, what does arise. And I think it's just an essential aspect for us to really continue forward. Yeah, and I think what's neat is where you said is owning it's a mirror, which means it's, there's honesty in front of me. And yeah. I think sometimes when we see the ugly, we want to say, well, no, that's not me. That's not me. And if you understand that's a mirror, yes, that is you. That's a mirror. That, that's not something trying to mislead you or say, nope, that's reality. I think that's what makes it really come home for a discovery of you can't be mad at other people then. right? You, you can't blame yeah. the mirror for what you see in the mirror. right? It's what you're seeing. That's a real hard discussion sometimes. But still, there's a lot of resistance to seeing that. Nobody, nobody wants to feel badly about themselves. And we've been trained ever since we we're little children. There's a, there's a really great uh, teacher of mine, Acharya Fleet Mall. He is a Buddhist teacher, a very high-ranking teacher, but he spent a number of years in prison for drug dealing. And he had to face this intense, overcome his self-deception. He has spent time in federal prison, and now he's just doing an amazing job of helping people, supporting them in facing who they are. I think this is a great example that it is indeed possible to hit the lowest of the low and still rise from that. And and his message is what he has learned is you just simply do not have to keep commenting on who you are, on who you, as bad person you think you are. Yeah. And that's so powerful. And and it's, it's freeing in so many ways. It's freeing. And you, you've mentioned several times that your main teacher was. Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. How was that your teacher? In what way? I think at the time when I started reading, I was reading Zen teachers, and then someone put this one in my hand, and I loved the directness, the way he wouldn't hide behind his robes or his tradition, and really talked about what it was like living, dealing with relationships, dealing with others, dealing with a difficult life, and, and be able to do so with joy and lots of Talk about fearlessness a lot, you know, that that's really part of the facing yourself and just being able to walk into fear and realize, oh, I'm surviving. So was most of your learning from there, was it all book? They started out with books that whetted my appetite. Then I found people in my town who were practicing and they would meet on Sundays at a house of a Dr. Shapiro in town. And then I went to a long, I think I mentioned already a long-term Buddhist retreat. Then I did the three-month program with him okay so you have had direct that's why i was wondering did you did you get the opportunity to have that direct learning you did yeah i did i did 
Did that occur here in the States? Did you leave the country to have that experience? It was actually in a hotel in Pennsylvania at the time. (laughs) That's awesome. I love it because that's so awesome because people hear these stories, right? And they want to picture, did you take off to Tibet? You know, did you have to go to these, you know, remote locations? And I think what it does is that's, they have such a stereotype of that. That people disconnect, not realizing, no, I started by going locally to some people in town and I went to Pittsburgh and I did this program with, you know, with the teacher that I'd been learning from. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. And by now there are centers all over and land centers all over. So then I did a lot of my studying and my programs. I went in Colorado at uh, Shambhala Mountain Center. I spent a lot of time there. I studied with a teacher named Condor Rinpoche, which took place out more on the East Coast. So basically, this is, this is available to anyone. Just do a Google search, search and you will see, oh, this teacher is showing up here and here and here. It's possible if you keep your eyes open and are willing to do a little traveling. And people know these days that you can't do what I did when I was young and take three months off. That doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> so now it's like you can but you can get a weekend in you know you can get a, a full week program somewhere and we have programs up here again one hour north of milwaukee where you can stay overnight and be with a teacher for a couple of days and really immerse yourself as as well as in milwaukee itself where i live that's very cool and i guess as you said they are all over the country what we're gonna do for all of our listeners is when when we're done here i'll get from alan if it's okay with you alan i'm gonna get the actual names of some of those examples you gave. We'll put them in the show notes so somebody goes to the website. Because when you hear the when you hear the pronunciation, trying to spell these names uh, <laughs> is a nightmare. And that's not to mock the names. If anybody ever saw my name, it's a nightmare. So <laughs> I completely understand that. But just for listeners, we'll make it easier for you and, and make that possible. What do you think has been the key for you over time? Because you've described 40 years here uh, of learning and exploration. What has been the key to keeping it going, to keeping that love and fire inside for that learning, for that growth? I really believe that the key is not to keep your mindfulness as something precious on a shelf, not to keep it as the special project you do, but to look at your life and see how can this be applied? Where in my life am I not being mindful? Where am I missing the joy? of my life because I'm not paying attention? Where am I missing the beauty because I'm so wrapped up in self-loathing or being vindictive or being defensive? So to me, the, the liveliness of it is saying, when does this start merging into my life? That is the key because when, when that happens, well, your life doesn't stop. So you have a you know 24-hour day wakefulness project to do. One of my teachers, uh, the, the son of Chogyam Trungpa, my original teacher, Sakyang Mipam, he talks about how basically we, pra- we, get, we get good at whatever we practice. So if we're going to practice being defensive, arrogant, angry, we're going to get to be masters of that. And if we practice kindness, acceptance of ourselves, fearlessness, appreciation of the world well we're going to get good at that so you have to really decide how much practice time you want to put in and where you're going to put it into put what you're going to put it into well i love what you said there about merging right it's an integration of your life it's a belief 
system of how you view life, it's not an exercise. Because people, as you know, people will often fall into the trap of, oh, I did my mindfulness for the day. <laughs> right. Which yeah. that's not how mindfulness works. It's an no. ongoing, right? So you might have done your meditation for the day, but that's different than mindfulness. That that's an exercise that helps. That's a practice that helps, but it's a whole nother level to have that mindfulness on a complete, you know, on an ongoing. I wouldn't say complete because it's never complete, but on an ongoing experience. So many people listen and go, was that is that meditation once a day or twice a day? It's a thinking, right? It's a thought process. For you, though, how did it start? And, and where's it gotten to today? Are you, what practices do you find most helpful? Do you meditate each morning? Do you meditate also in the evening? Do you take breaks during the day? Or is it in a different place today? Right now, I'm in the midst of a super busy time of my life. So there's less of it. I used to have practices where I'd be doing hours and hours and hours for the longest periods of times. Right now, I'm just really engage with my world in so many ways. And so I use little short practices. Uh, my, my tradition has offered lots of on-the-spot traditional uh, practices and practices that just, you look right now, like just I'm looking at you and say, how do I sit down and feel my butt right now and just pay attention to this moment? So this practice can go on all day long. And so I use that a lot. Using... The greatest, one of the greatest tools, one of the greatest teachings I've received is use, the use of sense perceptions. So there's my formal practice, which I consider to be like the laboratory. You know, I go to the laboratory, do my work, or like being a musician, I go and practice, but then I'm going to go out and play. And then to touch into the play for the rest of the day, sense perceptions are so essential. This is the part of us that is not caught up in judgment. It's like, like I'm right now I'm looking at a window full of snow falling and it's just really beautiful. <laughs> so that and I'm a musician, what I'm hearing, what I'm smelling, tasting, those things wake us up. So I think the important thing is to find those things in your life, the, the things that wake you up. If you're having difficult with the joy aspect of your life at some time, it is sense perceptions that can really wake you up and go, oh, okay, that gives me a moment. That's my practice for that moment Then I can continue jabbering on. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Well, and one of our cast members, John Celio, he speaks of when he gets up in the morning, having time just for st stillness, not even necessarily meditation, but just stillness. But what we'll do is he'll go outside on his back patio when the weather permits, and he'll allow each sense to be come in one at a time. So if when yeah. he first sits there, if the first thing he notices are birds chirping, okay, the sound, I'm just going to take in the sound. And then after a little while, if he notices a scent, okay, I'm going to take in that scent. And I think it's exactly what you're describing with, without necessarily always being intentional. And John would say that, like there wasn't a, a plan of how that was going to work, but how much that awakens him and just starts his day in such a magical way. You know, that's interesting because the rest of my teaching with mindfulness has to do with children with a group called uh, Growing Minds. It's an educational program teaching children mindfulness. And that exact thing that you describe is really such a great touchstone for children. We first start them with just sitting up straight, then we get to bringing a chime and then paying attention to sounds and paying attention to sights and paying attention to very simple things. Their heart, the feeling of their, their chest rising and falling as they're breathing. A lot of simple things like that. So those, those things of being able to touch into the sense perceptions are not only extraordinary for children, but for adults, we are feeling people. 
that's what we are. I mean, you and I are at this moment, we're feeling. <laughs> we're feeling what we're dealing with right now. Once this call ends, it's going to be full of feeling that's either from our senses or from our emotions, from our thoughts. And so we're constantly taking in through this membrane here. And so that is a great way to start practicing, to start looking at how you, what's going on in your sense perceptions, the feeling quality of that, and then feeling yourself and just saying, oh, that's pretty, well, that's pretty mindful to say, how am I feeling right now? Because you're paying attention to this. So for some people, they seem so far away from this idea of sitting on a mountaintop, <laughs> you know, as you were saying. Yeah, but, uh, it's, right. It's just saying, the- just saying, I'm feeling annoyed right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that's okay. Like I'm going to, I'm going to allow myself to have the thought process and that allows it to clear on such a faster level, allows that cloud to pass by on such a faster level. And this has been awesome, Alan. If, if someone were to say, hey, I'm new to this discovery, what one book would you really recommend for somebody who's new to even exploring the possibility of mindfulness in their life? Good question. I have too many I like. <laughs> it's a great problem to have. Uh, it is a great problem. I think for a beginning, like a, a manual that's so accessible, I think uh, t- Turning the Mind into an Ally by Sakyang Mipam is one of them. There's a new mindfulness book by Trungpa Rinpoche out. It's Mindfulness in Action, I believe. And that is, they've called all his mindfulness conversations into one book. And those two, I think, are very accessible. And they really speak to you to your, about your life and, and living that in a more full way. Love it. And let's say someone says, you know, I've been doing mindfulness for a long time. Is there a book that you would say, well, you know what, for those who have dove deep, this takes it to a different level or a different place? Oh, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> I'm thinking of a book that's really hard hitting, that was really helpful for me in my quest for writing the book I'm writing, The Truth of Suffering by Chogyam Trungpa also. The Truth of Suffering is about the original teachings of the Buddha, but brought right home to how we live this life here in, you know, in America in the uh, early 21st century. Awesome. Well, we will make sure those are on the show notes for everybody. Alan, I want to thank you. This has been a wonderful, enlightening conversation. and, and it's, it's been lovely. And for anybody who wants to find out about it, once again, you go to everydaymindfulnessshow.com where there's lots of information. We'll have a link. Uh, to There will be a bio on Alan and a link there. And until next time, for everyone listening, may you enjoy everyday mindfulness in your life. Three quick reminders. One, please subscribe to the Everyday Mindfulness Show on iTunes. Already subscribed? Then encourage others to join us by inviting them to subscribe to the show. Two, while on iTunes, download all the latest episodes. Three, reviews help more people find out about the show. Would you please go into iTunes and write a review? Doing so helps spread the mission of the show. Thanks. We appreciate you being a part of our vibrant, oftentimes silly, and always vulnerable community. If you have an idea, a thought, want to sponsor the show, or just want to say hi, send us an email at listen at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. And check us out at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Have a joyful, mindful week.